love that bumper video because it's really fun and I love that song. But, uh, you know, as I was sitting down here in the front row, I was thinking, Aaron and our worship team are just awesome. And I know Ryan gets called away because he's awesome. I think we ought to give the worship team a big hand today. So, yeah. Uh, last week, Pastor Ryan kicked us off on a new series called Happy Study of Philippians. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to pick up where we left off last week in Philippians 1, and uh, we're going to start at verse 12 this morning, and I'm going to read uh, the initial section of this text we're going to look at, and then we'll walk through it together during the message. Uh, Philippians 1, starting at verse 12, let's pay close attention. This is God's word to you and God's word to me. Uh, Paul, writing in prison from Rome to the Philippians, who were on the eastern edge of the Mediterranean there, a church he had planted, says this. He says, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me, his imprisonment, has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It's true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. Uh, the former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposingly that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. Uh, but what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached and because of this, I rejoice. Wow, what a testimony. Well, we're going to look at this, and as I said, some of the verses that follow this. But before we do this, can I get us to join our hearts together in prayer? Father, we want to bow before you today because you're our God and our Savior and our Redeemer. We thank you for the gift of salvation you've given us in Jesus. We thank you for the power of his spirit which you've poured out into our lives. Lord, I thank you for this church and every person that's here today. Lord, I suspect that some here are tangled or wrestling with issues or suffering in some way, and I pray for an extra measure of grace upon them. Lord, as we uh, look into your word today, we just pray that you might, by your grace, enlighten our minds, and by your spirit, you might touch our hearts, and that you might use this time of teaching to encourage us and challenge us, and just trust more in you. Thank you, Lord, for this time, and we ask this now in Jesus' name, and for our sake, amen. Just recently, I... Uh, learned that the all-time best-selling book originally written in English and published in English is Charles Dickens' novel, A Tale of Two Cities. Now, if uh, by some chance you were an English major in college or you love English fiction, uh, you probably knew that, but it was news to me. The book was originally published in 1859, and as of 2016, it has sold over 400 million copies. And if you've ever read it, you know it starts out like this. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. 
It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epic of belief. It was the epic of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. Uh, let me ask you this from, from your perspective and in your opinion, how well does that describe our day, our time, our place, our culture? Uh, just to stimulate our thinking on this a little bit, let me quote a few statistics from American Magazine. 75% of young men, 25 and under, suffer from a health defect induced by mental anxiety. The FBI reported that the average age of criminals is 19. Government estimates of abortion and sexually transmitted diseases are the highest of any generation. Drinking bouts among high school and college students have produced a huge spike in promiscuous sexual activity. 80% of young men, 60% of young women report having engaged in premarital sex. Marriages are four times more likely to end in divorce than 50 years earlier. Another government study concluded that marijuana and other mind-altering drugs are now being peddled to thousands of young people in every school, town, and city in the country. The president of a major university said that every day, newspapers report, quote, one more grave crime after another, one more social crisis after another, and one more dereliction of duty after another. One journalist traveled 10,000 miles across America to study the country's youth and concluded that the majority are confused, disillusioned, and disenchanted. Sounds like a really, really, really bleak time, doesn't it? But here's what's really interesting. All those statistics I just read come from the years 1936 and 1937. The media and the sociologists of that time called the group of young Americans who were alive then the lost generation. But 60 years later, NBC's news anchor Tom Brokaw called them the greatest generation because they survived the Great Depression, they won World War II, they provided decades of outstanding leaders and statesmen, they created family stability, and they imbued American culture with a can-do spirit. Brokaw surveyed the history of Western civilization, and this was the conclusion he came to. This was the greatest generation any society has ever produced. Well, given all that, it seems pretty clear that the difference between labeling that generation lost and labeling them great was one of perspective. Now, I'm not sure we realize this, friends, but this morning what I want to try to communicate to myself and to you is this, and that is our perspective on life is incredibly important. It is dramatically important in our lives because our perspective on life can either make us or break us, especially, especially, especially when we go through hard times. And that's what this text in Philippians 1 that we're looking at this morning is all about. As I said, Paul's writing this letter to the church of Philippi, a church that he had planted about 
10 years before this. But he's writing it while he's in prison in Rome. He's awaiting an appointment with the emperor to decide his legal status. And it's obvious that he's restricted, he's limited, he's literally in chains. There's no freedom, there's almost no privacy whatsoever. And I can guarantee you that the food he was eating was not what you and I would get from Chili's or Chipotle. And moreover, if you know anything at all about the Apostle Paul, you know that instead of being stuck in a small room in Rome, chained to members of the Praetorian Guard, what Paul really wanted to do was travel west to Spain to preach the gospel. Or he wanted to travel throughout the eastern Mediterranean to visit all the churches that he had started, that he had planted. Or he wanted to engage all kinds of new people, believers and unbelievers alike, with the love and the faith of Jesus. And as we look at this text, it's clear that he's not only suffering because he's imprisoned, but he's got some enemies there in the church at Rome, and they're trying to shame him because he's a criminal or being charged as being a criminal, and he's awaiting an impending trial before the emperor. Now, we don't know who these people were, but as he notes here, they're trying to cause him pain and shame and embarrassment as he suffers through the agonies of his imprisonment. Friends, if there was ever one person whose life illustrated the truth that to be a follower of Jesus means that sometimes we have to take up our cross, it was the Apostle Paul. He shows us that life sometimes, even for a Christian, is really, really tough. Amen. Amen. I suspect you've probably experienced some tough times in the last year. I've seen this up close and personal. Uh, a woman that I'm in a prayer group with at Denver Seminary where I teach, uh, her sister has been battling cancer over the last year, and that's been very, very challenging for her and very challenging for their family. Two of my colleagues at school deal with chronically sick spouses on a daily basis. Their lives are very, very difficult. Our president, Mark Young, and his wife, Priscilla, uh, they have a daughter and a son-in-law who live down in Dallas, and their son-in-law and two of their grandchildren by their daughter and son-in-law, their, their son-in-law and those two grandkids were just in a horrible car wreck about 10 days ago, and fortunately they survived, but it was a traumatic, painful, suffering experience for them. Uh, this last Christmas Eve, as we were all gathered together here to celebrate the Incarnation, I, I literally sat right over here in the Christmas Eve service about four rows back, and I was in deep pain because my sister, Becky, who's a few years older than me, she was in a coma in Swedish hospital, and we were pretty sure she was dying from a very severe case of viral pneumonia. And fortunately, by the grace of God, she came out, but that was a very, very challenging, painful experience for me. Friends, this text shows us, as do many texts in the Bible, that life can be tough, and it can be tough for God's people. It was tough for Paul, and yet what Paul does is he transforms this tough time by turning his prison into a pulpit. Now, I have no idea why this is so, but I know that as we read the history of the church, one of the things God does is he he oftentimes creates great things out of prison experiences. Uh, John Bunyan wrote that famous work, The Pilgrim's Progress, while he was in jail in Bedfordshire Prison. 
Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was held by Hitler and the Nazis in Flossenburg prison, and yet he wrote letter after letter after letter to his former students and many of his friends to encourage them. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. was at one point imprisoned in the Birmingham jail, and he wrote this great series of letters called Letters from the Birmingham Jail, which have inspired thousands. And here we have the Apostle Paul, chained to the Praetorian Guard in a small room in Rome by himself, and yet God uses him and inspires him to write this letter, which have blessed millions of Christians throughout history. And the reason it's blessed them is because Paul gives us a fresh perspective on tough times. Uh, once again, let's, let's go back to the beginning of this section that we just read here, because what Paul does is he begins by focusing on the mission of God. Look, look what he says again. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me, my imprisonment, my suffering, my pain, has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace garden to everybody that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. What Paul's saying is, he's got a praetorium guard who was assigned to guard the emperor. He's got one of them chained to him on a regular basis and they would rotate through. They all know now, he's not a common criminal. He's imprisoned for religious reasons and you just know that Paul was telling them about Jesus. He's saying that, yeah, I've got these enemies in the church here, but it doesn't matter because whether they're my friends or my enemies, these people are now motivated to share the gospel. And the implication is, people are coming to faith. Christ's kingdom is advancing. The gospel is expanding. And as a result, Paul says he can rejoice. Oh, friends, Paul shows us here that our perspective on life is incredibly important, especially in tough times, because our perspective can either make us or break us. And so what Paul was doing in this situation was everything he could to look for the providential work of the sovereign Savior in the midst of his difficult circumstances. Years and years and years ago, when I was uh, a sophomore in college, my girlfriend, who I really loved, broke up with me, and she broke my heart, crushed me. So I did what uh, Christian college students do. I got together with the associate pastor of our church, who was my mentor, and I just lamented my situation and how she broke my heart and how I was really suffering. And with the, the, a great gift of mercy, a great act of kindness, incredible sensitivity, he looked me in the eye and he said, Scott, this is the best thing that's ever happened to you. And I said, how can you, how can you say that? I'm, I'm hurting, I'm, I'm broken hearted. And he said, let me tell you what's going to happen. He said, here's why this is so good for you. He said, the day's going to come, it's going to be a few years out, and you might be teaching school, or you might be in some kind of ministry, or you might be pastoring people. And some student's going to come in, and they're going to say, Mr. Winnick, my, my boyfriend broke up with me, or my girlfriend broke up with me, or I'm having problems with my parents, or this didn't go how I wanted, and you're going to be able to empathize with them, minister to them, and maybe even share the gospel with them. You know what's really interesting is, my mentor was somewhat prophetic. Three years later, I was teaching high school history and coaching basketball in a small town up in the mountains called Oak Creek. 
And we had a seven-hour day, and sixth hour was my planning period. And within a few months of school starting that year, I started to have a stream of students come through my office during my planning period. And here was their story. Mr. Winnick, my girlfriend broke up with me. Mr. Winnick, I'm having problems at home. Mr. Winnick, I got cut from the football team. And my friend was right. I was able to empathize, and I was able to share with them, and I was able to love on them. And I was used by the Lord to see a lot of those kids come to know Jesus Christ. In the midst of tough times, the gospel was advancing. Friend, I have absolutely no idea where you might be at today. But you may be in a really, really difficult situation relationally or financially or occupationally or with your health. I just want you to know I empathize with you. I have been there. But I have two questions I want to ask you, and I want you to meditate on these. Do you in any way whatsoever, do you in any way whatsoever see the work of the sovereign Savior and how he might providentially be at work in your circumstances in order to advance the gospel? Without in any way whatsoever diminishing your suffering, without in any way diminishing your pain. How's your perspective today? See, Paul felt the pain of his imprisonment. But what's really, really interesting, and I think this is really, really important for you and for me, is that he takes the perspective that God's doing some great things in and through his tough times, and then what he does is he applies them to himself. Look what he says in the next section of this text. Let me move ahead here. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers, that is the Philippians' prayers, and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me, my imprisonment, will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Now, I think it's important that we take some time here to pause and look at a couple of details so we know exactly what Paul's trying to communicate in this section of Scripture. The word that's translated here, deliverance, in the original text I'll be honest with you, I don't like that translation. I mean, in other places it's translated vindication, but it's the word that we normally use for salvation. I just don't think it fits very well. And I think as you look at the flow of thought and what Paul's trying to communicate here, I think it would be better translated, what has happened to me will turn out for my best. And we'll go on and see what he says here because he's, he's saying whether it's by life or, or death, I, I hope it's for my best. But then the second thing we need to consider here, and this is very important, is what's about to happen to Paul. And that is he is about to go on trial before the Roman emperor. See, what Paul did in Acts 25 was he appealed to the Romans when he was in Caesarea. He was in prison and he didn't think he was going to get a fair trial and he was right he wasn't. So he said, I appeal to Caesar because he was a citizen and could do that. So they shipped him to Rome and now he's under house arrest and he's in this little tiny room and he's chained to the Praetorian Guard but he will become before Caesar here very soon. Now, here's why this is important. Caesar could decide and would decide his fate. But the Caesar at this time was Nero. Nero was a compulsive, corrupt, 
wildly extravagant and violent man who at one point eventually ended up killing his mother, killing his brothers. Nero was a genuinely dangerous and malevolent personality. And there was a very real chance, and Paul knows this, that when Paul came before him and laid out his case, Nero could, if he chose, give him the thumbs down and lead to his execution. And yet, as we look at this text, what we see is Paul is rejoicing because he really does believe that all of these events will turn out for his best. Now, what I want us to understand here is Paul is not a naive optimist about life. He's not in denial about his suffering. Paul's not this pie-in-the-sky, by-and-by person who's emotionally shut down in order to protect himself from pain. He's in prison. He's under very severe restrictions. He's bothered by his enemies. And there's a very real possibility that as he goes before the emperor, he might be executed. And yet here he writes to the Philippians and he says, I'm rejoicing and I'm going to continue to rejoice. He's thrilled. He's pumped. He's excited. And the reason why he could do that, and this is so, so, so foundational, is because his perspective on life and his perspective on death had been Christianized. Let me show you what I mean by the next verse. Look what he says here. For to me, to live is Christ To die is gain. Uh, Friends, this is the key verse in this entire passage. It conditions everything that Paul sees, everything he's going to talk about from here on, because this is the foundation of his perspective. It has been Christianized. Now, what he does, and this is great, He goes on in verse 22 and 23, and he gives us a Christian perspective on life, and then he gives us a Christian perspective on death. Let's look at the Christian perspective on life that he gives. He says this, if I go on living in the body, in other words, if Caesar releases me and I get to go free, this will mean fruitful labor for me. In other words, what Paul's saying is this. He's saying, you know, if I get free from my chains and I get to go out again, I get to serve Jesus and I'm going to bear more fruit for him. My life is going to be filled with fruitfulness. Now, if you don't mind, what I'd like to do is take just a second and talk about a paradigm of the way sometimes we've been taught to view life in church world. I think sometimes what we've been taught is this, that if you're a Christian and you're really spiritual, here's how you'll, you'll view life. God's at the top, and then maybe it's your marriage, or maybe it's your family, or maybe it's your friends, and then it's your job, and then maybe below your job is recreation, and then below that's how you manage your money, and then maybe down here is how you take care of your house. In other words, there's this priority list, and, and the idea behind it is this is how it's really spiritual to live. The problem with that is that's not biblical, and it doesn't work. And the reason why it doesn't work is we all have a number of responsibilities and tasks and problems that come our way, and it blows that paradigm out of the water on a daily basis. It seems to me, seems to me, that it's much more biblical and much more helpful to view life as a wheel. And the wheel is supported by a series of spokes. 
And each of those spokes represent responsibilities and tasks and problems and issues that we have to deal with. And at the very center of the wheel, uniting all the spokes, is Jesus Christ. He's at the center of the wheel. And therefore, he influences every one of the spokes. He influences every single part of our lives. It seems to me when Paul talks about living as Christ, that he's going to bear fruitful labor, that's how he saw life. In other words, Paul was a tent maker. He made tents for a living. So that meant when he was sitting around with his friends and they were making tents, Christ was at the center of that and they were going to make really, really, really good tents. When Paul was traveling around the eastern Mediterranean and he was going into different cities like Philippi and he was preaching the gospel, he knew that Jesus was with him as he did that. When Paul's sitting here in prison and he's chained to that praetorian guard, yeah, he wants to be free from that, but he knows that Jesus is with him as he's chained to that guard and so he shares Jesus with the guard. His, his perspective on life has been transformed because Jesus is at the center. Now, most everybody in here at one time or another has uh, come across the story or the movie of Cinderella. And if you know anything about Cinderella, you know that before she goes to the ball, she's, she's an employee. She's a servant. And she's really dejected and she's sad and she's unhappy because life is really, really sad because she hasn't met her prince yet. And so she has to sweep and she has to mop and she has to clean and she's sad and she's down. But then she goes to the ball and then she meets the prince and everything changes. Her entire perspective on her life changes. She still has to go back and be a servant. But now when she goes back as a servant, because the prince has changed her perspective, because he's at the center of her life, everything is different. She sweeps like never before. She mops like never before. She cleans like never before. Her work was the same, but her perspective was different. Friends, what Paul's trying to communicate to you and me, and this goes beyond him to us, and that is, if we place Jesus at the center of our lives, to live as Christ, that means this, that over time, we will bear good fruit in our lives. We'll grow in grace and godliness and good character. We'll have a positive impact on our families and our friends and our coworkers. We'll see the value of church and ministry. We'll reach out with the love of Jesus to our friends and our neighbors. Friends, a Philippians 1 perspective, which we want to have, is one where Jesus is at the center of life and everything we do. Everything we do. And that's not all. A Philippians 1 perspective also impacts the way we view death. Look what Paul says here as he unpacks the idea that death is gain. He goes on and he says, I'm torn between the two. And that is between staying alive and, and, and dying. He says, I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. Here's what he's communicating to the Philippians. It's a foundational piece of Christian living, Christian dying, Christian theology. He's saying that when we die, when he dies, that his body would be left behind. 
And this is going to be true for you and me if we know Jesus. Our bodies are left behind, but our spirits automatically go to be with the Lord. We're in the presence of the Lord, where it's peaceful and calm and glorious. And what we do is we wait with the Lord in that disembodied state until the end of human history when Jesus returns to planet earth and he resurrects all the dead and he gives us a brand new resurrected glorified body which will then allow us to enter the new heavens and the new earth for all eternity where we'll never get sick, we'll never die, we'll never have headaches or pains or anything like that ever, ever again. It's going to be glorious. And that's why Paul can say, I'm going to go be with Jesus and I've got that to look forward to. And it is gain. It's gain. See, a Christianized perspective on death changes everything. This is a fresco of two young women that I hold in very, very, very high esteem. Uh, Their names were Perpetua on the left and Felicity. Uh, As you can see by the fresco, they're people of color. They were North African. And they lived in North Africa in the early part of the third century. And they were both very devoted disciples of Jesus. Uh, Perpetua was a Roman noblewoman. She came from a very upper class family. And Felicity was her servant. And they were both young mothers. And we think perhaps that both of their husbands had been martyred earlier. Well, they were both arrested on charges of being a Christian. And they were placed in a prison. And because Perpetua was, as I said, a Roman noblewoman, her father was not a Christian, came to visit her in prison. And we have the testimony. It's the testimony of her martyrdom. And her father would come in and he would plead with her. He'd say, Perpetua, what's wrong with you? You're embarrassing me. You're embarrassing the family. You're embarrassing your mother. What's going to happen to your baby if they kill you? What's wrong with you? Give up this Jesus thing. She said, no, Father, I cannot. I'm a Christian. I'm committed to Jesus. Her father said, but they're going to kill you. And she said, yes, they they probably will. And she says, when I die, I will go be with Jesus. And someday, 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 I'm going to be resurrected from the dead. And death can never, ever, ever touch me again. And eventually, the guards came and got she and Felicity, and took them out into the arena with some other Christians. And yes, they were martyred. But the reason they could do that, and they challenged me, and they encouraged me, and they inspired me, is because they saw death as as gain. Oh, friends, Paul comes to us here, and he says, we want to develop a Philippians 1 perspective on life because It's really, really important, and we want to develop a Philippians 1 perspective on death because it's really, really important because our perspective can either make us or break us. Now, the reality is, some of you in this congregation at this church probably have this down. The reality is you're just incredibly mature in your walk with Jesus. You've been walking with him for a long time. You've gone through some hard times, but you have a Philippians 1 perspective on life and death. And so when those hard times come, you navigate those pretty well. You really, really do. It's, it's not that you don't feel pain, but you navigate those pretty well. But if you're like me, and you're striving for it, and you want it, but you know you're not there yet, this whole thing about a Philippians 1 perspective can be pretty, pretty challenging. 
And my wife was here first hour, and she was nodding as I was saying this, because she knows me really well, and she knows it's challenging for me. So if you're like me, and you find this to be a challenge, what I'd like to do for just a moment is give us some suggestions to help us develop a Philippians 1 perspective. Suggestion number one, let's remember that developing this kind of a perspective on life and death takes time. It takes time. Paul was extremely advanced in his Christian life at this point. He was pretty old, but it took him time to get there. And it's going to take most of us time to get there as well. Because, see, here's the deal. To have a Philippians 1 perspective on life where we see it as fruitful labor or death is gain, that's not natural. That's supernatural. And so it takes time for us to let our perspective change and mature. Uh, my wife, Melanie, teaches preschool, and she started doing this about four and a half years ago. And the school where she originally started to teach preschool was over on South University, and uh, they decided early in the year that they were going to have a fundraiser. And so we all went to this pizza parlor this one night, and you would buy pizzas, and then the school would get a certain amount of money and everything. And we were there, and we were having a great time eating pizza and hanging out, meeting some of the staff. And this one little guy who was in Melanie's class, his name was Carter, he came in with his parents, and Melanie says, Carter, come over here, come over here, I, I want to introduce you. And so Carter and I met and everything, and so it was just a great evening. We had a great time. They raised some good money. Well, Melanie told me that the next day when she got to school, Carter was really, really excited. And he got together with all his buddies, and he said, I saw Miss Melanie at the pizza parlor last night, and she was with her dad. Well, if you get to know my wife and I, you'll realize there is a significant age difference between us. Don't ask me what it is. It is significant, but I'm not old enough to be her dad. Now, it's been four and a half years since little Carter said that he's nine now. If he were to come in today, he's not going to see us in the same way. He's not going to see us with that perspective. His perspective would have matured. Friends, it takes us time to develop a Philippians 1 perspective on life and death. Let's remember it also takes grace. Let me back up here to this, this passage here. This is really an interesting passage. Paul's telling the Philippians here, yes, I will continue to rejoice. I'm going to be happy about all this, for I know that through your prayers... A means of grace, the Philippians prayers for him, and God's provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance or my best. The word that's used there for provision is a really interesting word. It's the English word choreography. Yeah, a choreographer, as you know, is the person who arranges the set, the designs, the routine of the dance or the play. What Paul is talking about here are the means of grace. He's saying that the Philippians, if you'll pray for me, and then also if God will choreograph my life, which he is doing, which is another means of grace, what will happen to me, whether I live or whether I die, that will turn out for my best. For my best. Friends, you know this, when you're in the middle of a tough time, it's difficult, isn't it, sometimes, 
to see the providential hand of God at work for your best. And yet, if we give ourselves time and if we allow the means of grace to work, we can move towards having a Philippians 1 perspective. And that takes me to my third suggestion. This takes sacrifice. Now, I want you to strap yourself in in your chair here for a minute because I'm going to give you a pastoral word and some of you might disagree with me on this. That's okay, we can talk about it later. I am more convinced by the day that if we want to develop a Philippians 1 perspective where we live for Jesus and we see death as gain, that what we need to begin to do in the culture we live in is begin to sacrifice some, not all, some of our engagement with the media. I want to encourage you to dial back on how much TV you watch, especially, especially, especially cable news shows. Because what they do is they peddle all the time how negative things are, how bad things are, how if this person gets elected or that person elective gets elected, civilization will come to an end and your life's going to be really, really, really bad. Now, let me tell you why they do that. The reason they do that is because they are in the money-making business first and the journalism business second. Sociologically, we know, we know, we know, we know negative sells really, really well. In fact, I watch the CBS Evening News most evenings. Here's what I've realized over the last year. They'll give you nine negative stories and, and one positive one. You know why? Because negative Cells. Now, I'm not saying don't cut off all your media. I am saying sacrifice it, dial it back. Because what happens is if we just get inundated with that all the time, it's not going to help us develop a Philippians 1 perspective on life or death. So let me, if you don't mind for just a second, give us a little perspective of some stuff that you are never going to hear on any news program. And that is God is doing some great things globally and locally. Did you know in the last 30 years, in the last 30 years, one billion, that's billion with a B, one billion people have been lifted out of dire poverty to the lower, lower class where at least they now are on a subsistence diet? A billion people no longer threatened with death on a daily basis because of globalization. Did you know that in the last 40 years, Christianity has exploded in South America and Africa and Asia? Hundreds of people literally every single day come to Christ in Africa and South America. There's a distinct possibility within 40 years that China will have the largest number of Christians in the world. China's a, a country of a billion people. They think that there's maybe 100 million Christians there right now. They think within 40 years it could get up to 250 to 300 million people in China who are Christians. Amen. Now, I've lived in Denver most of my life, and I can testify by firsthand eyewitness experience that along the Front Range, all the way from north of Fort Collins down to Pueblo, in the last 25 years, there has been an under-the-radar revival going on. Hundreds of churches have been planted. Thousands of people from Fort Collins to Pueblo have been won to Christ. Churches are ministering in the city and ministering to the community. This last week, this last week, you're never going to hear this on the nightly news. One of my students came in 
and he sat down in my office, and he, he works at a, a church down here in Highlands Ranch, and he, he said, Dr. Winnick, i got to tell you some really exciting news. We had this great retreat. He said, there was this little 10-year-old girl. She's in fifth grade. She's in our youth group, and she invited 10 of her friends to our retreat. They came. Eight of them accepted Jesus. He says, I've got a little 11-year-old guy in my group. He's starting a prayer group in his public school. Friends, great things are happening here at South Fellowship. This church has doubled in size in the last three years because it has really good leadership. It's debt-free. We support innumerable ministries. And we saw a bunch of people get baptized here last Sunday. It doesn't get any better than that. And that means we need to be humble and grateful and prayerful going forward. Friends, we all want to and need to develop a Philippians 1 perspective on life and death because it's good for us. It's good for me and it's good for you to know that regardless of the circumstances, if we have Jesus at the center of our lives, he will help us bear fruit. And if by some chance, if and when he takes us to be with him, that is, it's gain. It's gain. But we also need to remember something else really, really important. This is really important. And that is our perspective on life and on death impacts everybody around us. Look what Paul does here at the end of this section. He says, but it's more necessary for you, that is the Philippians, that I remain in the body. In other words, he's going to trust that God's going to release him here. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I'll continue with all of you for your progress and join the faith so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Now, Paul knows he still has to go before the emperor, and he knows the emperor's going to give him a legal decision. But he loves the Philippians, and so what he does here, and I love this, he makes this incredible statement of faith. He's saying, you know what, I'm going to trust that God's going to release me, and the reason why is because I want to come and see you again, because I love you, and you love me, and we all want to be together. Paul gets the fact that even though he's in prison, and he's suffering, and his circumstances are not good, he knows that his perspective will influence the Praetorium Guard, influence the church in Rome, and it will really, really, really influence the Philippians. And tradition has it that Paul was released by Nero and that he did continue his ministry in the empire for another four or five years. And yet he recognizes here, and this is what we need to recognize, is that our perspective on life and on death and suffering really impacts those around us, really, really influences people around us. A few years ago, I had a student, he was a really bright guy, and I, I didn't know this until the end of his time at seminary, but his occupation was he was a beekeeper. And he was telling me about beekeeping, and he said, uh, you probably didn't know this, but there are different kinds of bees. He said, there are European bees, and there are African bees, and there are Asian bees. And he said, what we as beekeepers do is, depending on the season and depending on the need, depending on the production, what we'll try to do is change out the hive from European to African or African to Asian or maybe back. And I said, uh, that sounds really complex. Do you, do, you have to, do you have to kind of kill all the bees and then, 
buy new ones? And he said, no, 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 no. He says, that's not what we do at all. He said, here's what we do if we want to go from European to African or to Asian. He said, what we've learned is we just go in and we take out the queen. And we replace the European queen with an African queen. And after a while, after a while, the, the hive contextualizes, enculturates to what the queen is. And he says, so if the queen is European, the hive becomes European. If the queen's African, it becomes African. If the queen's Asian, it becomes Asian because it takes on the personality, or we might say the perspective of the queen. You know, I have no idea whatsoever if you're the queen of your home or your work or your neighborhood or even of our church. But I do know this, both on my basis of my experience and the, the rootedness of this text, that our perspective on life and death and everything else influences everybody around us. Friends, if we're negative, if we're pessimistic, if we're discouraged, and we think everything's going to Hades in a handbasket, that's going to bleed out into our families, our marriages, our jobs, our kids, our relationships. That'll bleed out into our health. And that takes everybody into a downward spiral and nobody wins. But if we have a Philippians 1 perspective, the perspective that Jesus, our sovereign Savior, is at work in our lives, and that he will help us bear good fruit, and he will then more than take care of us in death, that will give us energy and enthusiasm and a really, really, really positive impact because of Philippians 1 perspective, it's really, really good for me, it's really, really good for you, and it is really, really, really good for everybody around us. Now just, just imagine, just imagine for a moment if every single person here at South Fellowship, by the grace of God, developed a Philippians 1 perspective. Imagine the joy that all of us would experience personally and then imagine the happiness that would bring into our marriages and our families and our friends. Just imagine, just imagine, just imagine if every single person here at South Fellowship had a Philippians 1 perspective on living for Christ and dying as gain and we took that into the marketplace and the workplace and the school setting. Just imagine how we can infuse those places with a sense of optimism because we know that Jesus is at work and he's extending his kingdom in all those places. Oh, friends, just imagine, just imagine, just imagine if every church in Denver possessed a Philippians 1 perspective and was reaching out into our larger community with the love and the grace and the mercy of Jesus to the least and the last and the lost. Just imagine about the thousands more people that could and will be touched and transformed both for now and all eternity. And just imagine, just imagine, if every single Christian in the United States, by the grace of God, developed a Philippians 1 perspective over the next two and a half months. Just imagine if we all prayed together that God's grace would descend on the political process that we're involved in and that the love of Christ would descend. And we all stepped across the political aisle, whether we're on this side or this side, and we said we are about something much, much bigger than one election. We're about spreading the good news of the gospel and the hope that our nation can be healed because the gospel is the only answer for America and the world. You know what I think? And I think you agree with me. I think if by the grace of God we all did that, everybody around us would be amazed. 
The good news of Jesus would expand further and farther than we can imagine or think, and we'd all be much, much, much happier. Because as the apostle has shown us in this text, having a Philippians 1 perspective on life and on death, it's good for me, it's good for you. It's good for everyone else around us as well. Aaron told me earlier that if we're out of time, and we are, I should just do a benediction. So I'm going to ask you to stand, friends. I'm going to ask you to grab the hand of somebody next to you. We're going to have a South Fellowship benediction where we're in community, and then we will dismiss. Let's pray together. Father, we need you. We need your spirit. We need the love and the grace and the mercy of Jesus poured out into our lives. May you give us that right now. May you give us that today and this week as we leave here and we go out to be with our families, our friends, our neighbors, to the workplace, to the school place, to the marketplace. Lord, watch over us and anoint us now. We pray this in Jesus' name for our sake and the sake of those around us. Amen. Hey, have a great week and give them heaven.